for tuning in to NL News Day. It is Monday, the first day of the work week. So as always, pleased to welcome to the program Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, as always, appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. All right. So this piece that was written in the Toronto Star recently is raising some questions about impaired driving investigations. And I guess their accuracy. Now, a former Saskatoon police officer was quoted in the piece as saying he was shocked to learn from the STARS investigation that some RCMP officers using expired equipment to take blood draws from suspects in a statement to the STAR. An RCMP spokesperson had actually confirmed that if only expired kits are available, officers are allowed to use expired equipment to process drug or alcohol readings. And then... After that, while well, they spoke to you, Kyla, you say there is low public awareness about this issue because only a small number of impaired driving cases ever make it to open court trials, plus the fact that stigma around impaired driving keeps people quiet. Now, blood draw kits are used most often in cases involving serious injuries from a crash, while, of course, lesser or less serious incidents usually end up just with a breathalyzer. So I'll, I'll start with your own experience on this, Kyla, but just how many times... Have you seen in your career expired kits being used in the cases that you have handled? I've had about 20 cases with expired kits being used by the RCMP or local police agencies. That number, it doesn't seem insanely high, but when we're talking about the use of expired equipment, I mean, anything above zero is probably alarming. So I'll start with just the issues that you've experienced when you've handled these kinds of cases. I mean, can you trust the information that is being received when an expired kit is being used. You cannot trust the information being received when an expired kit is being used. What happens um, when the kit passes its expiry date is in the blood tube there's a vacuum seal. And the point of the vacuum seal is to allow the blood to go in but not allow it to mix with any ambient air so that fermentation of the blood doesn't occur. If the inside of the tube gets contaminated with bacteria, which is easy to happen when you have you know, needles and handling and all of that, um, and the bacteria reacts with regular room air, a process of fermentation can occur where the blood sample actually starts to produce alcohol in the same way that you know your applesauce in the back of your fridge can ferment if you leave it there for too long. Um, and so the blood alcohol reading starts to go up, and the longer the samples wait to be tested, the higher the blood alcohol level becomes as more and more alcohol develops inside the sample. So I imagine, I know that you and, uh, you know, Paul Doroshenko, you guys often put together videos where you sort of analyze, you know, whether it be breathalyzer equipment or, you know, in this case, a, a blood sample kit. Have you had a chance to, you know, do some, some work on an expired kit and what that might look like? Have you guys taken that info into the lab yourself? We have not taken any of that information into the lab, but there's not really a need for us to do it because there have actually been numerous studies that have been done to look at whether using the, the blood tubes after their expiry date will produce false high readings. And all of those studies have confirmed that this does, in fact, result in unreliable samples and is an improper scientific practice that does not lead to a true reflection of what a person's blood alcohol level is. Now, when you have a case like this and, and you see that an expired kit has been used, how many times does that information actually become pertinent to a case in the sense that obviously it matters, but you mentioned in, in the piece that only a very small number of impaired driving cases ever make it to open court trials and therefore, you know, this type of information not make it out into the public eye. So just how often does, does this particular issue actually become useful in a case 
if it doesn't even make it to court in the first place? It's very rare for an issue like this to actually be argued in court. And the reason for it is is there's a lot of reasons. One is that of all of the impaired driving cases that happen in Canada, only a very small percentage of those actually result in a trial. In fact, the BC Provincial Court did an assessment of criminal cases that were set for trial and found pre-pandemic that only 4% of cases that were scheduled for trial actually proceeded on the trial date. So we're talking about a very small number of the overall cases making it to trial. Of that very small number, only a very small number of them are cases involving blood samples where the RCMP took the blood sample. Even with other accident and fatality cases where blood was drawn, oftentimes the blood is drawn by the hospital who follow the process of using non-expired tubes and then later seized by a warrant. So you have to have sort of the, the perfect storm of events in order to get these types of cases which means that a very, very, very small amount of them nationally are going to be litigated every single year. And then of those cases, oftentimes something happens in the middle of trial or the accused decides to plead guilty partway through the trial or the lawyer doesn't realize that this is an issue. Um, because of how little scientific literature is publicly available on this and how unavailable experts are to the average person because of the cost associated with them and the need to have very specialized knowledge about the way that this goes, not every lawyer who's dealing with an impaired case involving an accident and a fatality and a, a, a blood tube that's expired is going to necessarily know the significance of the scientific issue. And this is complicated by the fact that the RCMP position and the experts that they use always provide reports saying that the expired tubes don't make a difference in the blood alcohol reading. It only impacts the amount of blood that can be collected from a person when drawing the sample, which is not scientifically accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so... Uh Two, two things I kind of wanted to connect the dots on here is the company, one of the companies that provides these kits uh, to RCMP across the country was quoted in this piece and said, these kits don't recommend using them past the expiry date. Expiry is about 12 months, I guess, after manufacturing. So it says once that 12-month period is up, you should not be using these kits. But as I mentioned in the intro there, an RCMP spokesperson did confirm to the star that if expired kits are available and that's what that's all they have at their disposal. Officers are allowed to use expired equipment to process drug or alcohol readings. I mean, that is totally contradictory to what the manufacturer is saying. And I understand, too, that this can become more of a problem when we're talking about people living in more rural settings because the, the chance of, of uh, non-expired kits being available is, is potentially less likely. And I guess that means, from, from the way I kind of read between the lines on this, if you live in a more remote location... The chance of you being treated fairly by use of a kit in a uh, impaired driving case where a blood sample needs to be taken, there, there's a chance you're not going to be treated fairly because just because the equipment's not available. Yeah, and, and this is something that we see often where, you know, RCMP and, and government agencies blame a lack of resources in remote or rural areas or even just outside of major urban centers. They blame a lack of resources for their inability to do something properly. And to me, that is, it, it's offensive. The idea that you should not be treated fairly, that you should have less stringent scientific procedures followed in a case where your liberty is at stake. Your ability to walk out of there without a criminal record is at stake. And in cases involving blood samples, usually whether or not you're going to go to jail 
is at stake. But you should have to face more significant consequences than somebody from an urban center because the RCMP is not resourcing police officers correctly to equip them with the necessary tubes, to purchase more tubes, to make them more readily available, to track where the tubes are and to know when they need to be replaced in advance so that this doesn't happen. To me, that is offensive. And it demonstrates a a lack of prioritizing the rights of an accused person in our criminal justice system over the need to spend a little bit more money on tubes every year. That being said, you know, we worry about how people in rural and remote settings might not be getting the same shake, but you're still seeing this in in big urban centers, are you not? This does happen in urban centers. I've had lots of cases in the lower mainland where expired uh, tubes have been used. Um, But, you know, the RCMP in attempting to explain this uh, has been saying that, you know, this is most common in these locations. I'm not sure that I agree with that, um, but even if it were, uh, that doesn't excuse the fact that they are not resourcing their officers correctly. Well, um, I'm, I'm guessing you're hoping that the fact that this article that came out in the Toronto Star maybe raises a few eyebrows and hopefully gets the uh, questions being pointed at the RCMP to maybe change their practice. I guess is that sort of the end goal here at this point? I mean, my hope is that the RCMP change their practices, but my hope is also that the the people who are going to court, the RCMP expert witnesses who are testifying about this, take a better look at the science underlying these uh, these vacuum tubes and and the use of expired tubes, and provide more fulsome information to the court in their testimony about the impact that an expired tube can have, so that these cases can be adjudicated on all of the evidence, not only on the evidence uh, that supports the RCMP case. All right, Kyla, here with Acumen Law is Kyla Lee. Just to switch gears here briefly, there's probably not a ton to be said at this point in time as these developments are, are ever-changing, but I wanted to just go into the situation in London, Ontario, where we know um, this 20-year-old man uh, has been charged in relation to the killing of this Muslim family, uh, hitting five people as they were just out for a family walk, killing four of them. The nine-year-old boy is the only survivor here. Um, so federal and provincial crown attorneys have now laid terror charges against Nathaniel Veltman. Um, first, he was facing four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder in relation to the alleged vehicle attack. Uh, but as of his uh, court appearance this morning in London, prosecutors informed Veltman they received consent to pursue terrorism charges. Does this, um, I guess, circumvent the first-degree murder charges or do these get tried together? How does this work now? Well, uh, the charges are essentially upgraded uh, to terrorism-related charges. So it becomes a factor that the court uh, takes uh, into consideration. Um, Obviously, you can have a first-degree murder that doesn't have terrorism connections, and participating in terrorism is an independent offense. So terrorism can also be an aggravating factor considered on sentencing, or engaging in terrorist activity can be a standalone charge. What's interesting to me is that these charges are laid at this point. It suggests to me that uh, there is evidence that has come into the possession of, of the prosecution, um, and likely obtained by police executing search warrants, that suggests that there was some political or ideological motive behind these attacks, and that it wasn't just a situation of a, of a you know a random opportunistic uh, decision to uh, to take out particular individuals. And it'll be interesting to see how that evidence comes out over time, and what we learn about the basis of the particular allegations that this was terrorism. Yeah, well, I know there's a publication ban in place right now, so I imagine it's going to be quite a while that this particular case will actually go through the process, and then 
be quite some time after that before we see some of the information be made public. Is that, do you think, fair to, to expect this is going to take a long time to draw out? It is definitely fair to expect this will take a long time to draw out, although um, from what I understand from what has been reported so far, there are there is some pretty compelling evidence uh, to connect the individual charge to the commission of the offenses. Um, but the publication ban is important um, because the existence of the publication ban prevents uh, a case that is high profile like this. Um, information about the case from being uh, laid out by the media that could potentially contaminate any jurors who are uh, going to be serving on the jury and protects the integrity of the trial. So the publication ban is an important aspect of these proceedings, particularly in cases that are serious like this one. All right. Well, I think that's uh, about all I have on this right now, uh, given how quickly you know we're, we're talking since those terrorism charges were, were put in place here. So uh, anything else to add while I have you here, Kyla, on that particular subject? Nope, that's everything for me. Perfect. Well, as always, thank you so much for the time. Joining me every Monday, as you do. I always appreciate you coming on. And yeah, some really interesting conversations here this afternoon. So appreciate the time, and we'll we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, not a problem at all. Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee, joining me as she does every Monday at this time, following the 5.30 news. Always appreciate her taking the time to join me and provide a little insight on some of the things going on in the legal world right now. I found that uh, whole article i would actually encourage people to check it out and read the piece on uh, the expired blood testing kits and as it relates to uh, dui investigations in some of the places of of the country um surprising to learn that expired i don't know maybe i shouldn't be all that surprised by that given that i know there's issues with paying tax dollars to get some of those supplies into their hands of police to make sure, uh, you know, that they have what they need to be able to do their job. You know, I I always understand that there's an issue when it comes to budgeting with that. And I don't think this is something that's happening very frequently. I don't think this is like a huge, massive institutional problem that we need to throw our hands up in the air all all about and, and, you know, collectively be together as one on this. But I still find it interesting that that is being done. And now there was a literal quote from an RCMP spokesperson that said, in certain cases, if all that is available to officers is expired equipment, expired test kits, then they are allowed or permitted to use those expired kits. I don't drink expired milk. I don't know why you'd be using expired testing kits.